Four games in the NBA. We've got it all covered for you. And we talked to Sam Amick from The Athletic about a number of different topics, including the upcoming trade deadline. And then we get a little weird with some new rules for the NBA. It's a Locked On NBA Wednesday show. Let's go. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. This is Locked On NBA Wednesday show. I want to welcome you all back. We are John Corrales and Jake Madison. I, John Corrales, now cover the Celtics for MassLive.com. I'm a Celtics beat writer, now also co-host of the Lockdown Celtics podcast. You can find me on Twitter at RedsArmy underscore John. And I'm Jake Madison, host of the Locked On Pelicans podcast. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Nola Jake. So we like to cover the entire NBA. Obviously, you didn't see all the games. We did. So our nightly recap is something we call too long, didn't watch. And we're going to start in Denver. The Nuggets win again, beating the Dallas Mavericks 126-118 in another thriller. The Nuggets at the top of the standings. Can you believe it? Jokic, ho, ho, boy, line into the night. 32 points, 16 rebounds, 4 assists. What a night for him. Uh, it might be even more impressive is late in the game when Dallas is trying to mount a comeback. He had like, uh, I think three or four straight possessions of amazing defense at the rim. He just had a huge night. That's not likely to get amazing defense from him, uh, but that's what you gotta do if you're gonna take that next step. Great night for him. From the Dallas side, Harrison Barnes, big night, 30 points and 23 from Luka Doncic. Not a great shooting night, but big night from the free throw line. Moving on, the Los Angeles Lakers, I think we're getting into the bad loss section of the too long didn't watch. Lakers lose to the Nets, 115-110. Nets challenging for a playoff spot in the East. D'Angelo Russell getting revenge against his former team, 22 points and 13 assists. Yeah, LeBron was awesome in this one. 36 points, 13 rebounds, 8 assists from him. Didn't get a ton of other help from the rest of the Lakers, though Kyle Kuzma put in 22 points, and you had Lonzo Ball scoring 23 as well. Just not enough to get it done, though. No, three guys, very top-heavy. Those three guys had great nights. Everyone else, next next highest scoring night was 8 points from Lance Stevenson. So not a great night. Josh Hart, 2 of uh, two of 10 uh, just not going to cut it there. Uh, also for the uh, Brooklyn Nets, Spencer Dinwiddie, 18.6 assists. They had six guys in double figures. The Cleveland Cavaliers on a Larry Nance buzzer beater beats the Indiana Pacers. Another bad loss. Pacers just bad, bad. They Winning streaks snapped, and uh, Cavaliers win this one. Yeah, this was weird. Both teams just shot so poorly from the field. You had one team that shot 19.4% from three, another team that shot 18.2% from three. It was a one-point game. You can probably guess which team shot a little bit better. Yeah, and, and Nance really was the factor down the stretch, making a big plays. 15.6 rebounds, six assists for Larry Nance on 7-14 shooting, just a great overall night. Again, they also had six players in uh, double figures. The Pacers didn't get a lot from Victor Oladipo. Bad shooting night from him. They're just not built to withstand a bad shooting night from Victor Oladipo. And maybe the worst loss of the night, the Washington Wizards losing 118-110 to the Atlanta Hawks. They got Trevor Ariza. And you can say, well, Trevor Ariza just getting acclimated and all that stuff. But look, 
When he was good. The Wizards, yeah, he was good. The Wizards have to beat Atlanta. You have to beat the Atlanta Hawks. I don't care who you have or don't have. You have to beat the Atlanta Hawks. Look, it's not a Wednesday edition of Lockdown NBA unless we make fun of the Wizards a little bit. But when you get 19 points, 8 rebounds, and 4 assists from Trevor Reza in his first game back with you, when Bradley Beal puts up 29 points, 10 rebounds, that's enough. That should be all you need. You can get enough from other guys. They couldn't. Weirdly keeping the theme of things here, double-figure scores for the Hawks. They had seven guys led by John Collins, 20 points, 13 rebounds. Collins has been a beast. Uh, he His only bad game came against the Celtics. Uh, but over the past probably, I think, seven or eight games, he has been a monster. The big thing, I think, for them was Trey Young shot well. Trey Young in this game shot three of six from three. And looking at Trey Young's shooting numbers, the Hawks have seven wins. Five of those wins have come when Trey Young has shot 40% or better from three. I don't know if there's a direct correlation, but it feels like uh, there's definitely some there. The direct correlation because his shooting has been on and off and it was, it's been off for a lot. When it's on, the Hawks can be very, very dangerous. So that's the night in the association. One last thing before we move on to our next segment. The NBA officials admit what we all saw with our two eyeballs. <laughs> James Harden traveled on the double setback. They, and they specifically were like, okay, one's a gather, those two things. And then that fourth step is the actual travel. So I guess thank you, NBA referees. It would have been nice to have somebody see the obvious four steps that he took. And what compounded that was that Rubio got called for a foul. He got the shooting shot. foul on it. Look, like, it, it's nice they apologize and we're like, yeah, we missed this one. I guess they didn't apologize. Just say they missed it. Didn't need to do that, though. We all saw it. It was plain as day that this was a travel. Yeah, plain, plain, plain as day. Uh I I don't know. It's Sometimes I, I understand officiating is hard. Officiating is in, in the guy. A lot of people have been talking about this. I was listening to the starters. They had a great conversation about this. The gather step is a very controversial thing right now, and it's it's unclear how to officiate what's a gather and, and how many steps you can take. And guys, right now, I'm I was talking. I was at Celtics practice today, talking to a few people, watching guys kind of go through things. NBA players, we were having this conversation about NBA players can can. Basically control like, like half their body can do one thing and half their bodies can do another. Like it's a weird kind of crazy athleticism that they have. These guys can figure out ways to manipulate the rules and these gather steps that they can take. You can let the ball spin in your hand without actually quote unquote controlling it, but actually controlling it and take five steps before you actually control the ball and then take your gather step and then take your two steps to get. And so I think guys like Giannis Antetokounmpo and James Harden and others are, are mastering this kind of weird flaw in the rules. And this is what you get. Yeah. Harden's crafty. He know, I mean, he knows what he's doing. I did like his response at the end of this though. What am I supposed to do? Tell on myself. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, There we are. Referees admitted that. Okay, a lot more coming up in this show. 
Sam Amick of The Athletic joins us after the break. Uh, we talk a lot. We talk about uh, his piece on Kawhi Leonard's free agency in the pursuit by the Clippers, how the Washington Wizards, more on the Wizards, it wouldn't be a Wednesday show, like you said, if we're not going in on the Wizards and we talk about them a little bit more uh, up next. And then later on, we're going to get into our weird rule changes, so stick with us. A lot more coming up here on the Locked On NBA podcast. A few interesting topics to get to in the NBA today, aside from the games. So for that, we will bring in Sam Amick of The Athletic. Sam, how's it going, man? John, Jake, thanks for having me, boys. All right, let's dive into this, and we'll start with your piece on The Athletic. Shameless plug. Not shameless, because I brought it up. It's not your, it's not your <laughs> plug. It's my, it's I want to talk about it. Check so, in the mail, man. There we go. Uh, Kawhi Leonard is essentially being stalked uh, by the, by the Clippers. Like everywhere he goes, there's a Clippers representative. And you had an interesting story about how you're talking to Kawhi and Lawrence Frank is there and he doesn't even recognize Lawrence Frank. John, I, I tried so hard to, to push the narrative the other way. You're killing me. I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding you. Like, I mean, yeah, like, the perception has certainly been the Clippers were stalking him. Uh, I'm a sucker for nuance, and so I enjoyed quite a bit trying to dive into that situation and try to peel the onion back a little more on what specifically they were doing, what they were trying to accomplish. You know, I guess I'll start with, yeah, the, the moment that you're referencing, I think was definitely insightful. So we're at the Staples Center the night that the Clippers play the Raptors. Toronto is one and only visit to, uh, you know, LA to play the Clippers. And Lawrence Frank, you know, if you don't know him, if you don't know his profile, he's been in the league, you know, since the late nineties, came in with Vancouver. And he, he's one of those dudes that just clearly knows almost everybody in the NBA. He's also friendly. So he's sitting in the hallway and he's saying hello to everybody. They just got their heads beat in by the Raptors. Uh, but nonetheless, he's saying hello to Raptors players, Clippers players, Doc Rivers coming by, all of the above. And it just struck me that he was on a first name basis with all these different people and they had a lot of affection for him. But then after about 20 minutes of that, where he and I were just kind of spitballing about different things, um, Kawhi ends up walking down the hallway. So that's the part where, because of the backdrop that you led with and the narrative that we all know has been out there for a while, in full disclosure, like I'm sitting there, and this is the fun part of our jobs, where as a reporter, you're going, oh, this little human moment is going to be fascinating. So Kawhi comes down, and I do know him a pretty reasonable amount, have covered him for a long time. And he came over and I just thought for sure that he'd be saying hello to both of us. And he's, you know, he and I said hello, you know, good old little half hug. How's it going? And then he just didn't know Lawrence. And what hit me about it, you know, is Kawhi just kept moving, went to the team bus and, and, you know, Lawrence was just sitting there hanging was that I do call me naive, call me a sucker. I do genuinely believe the focus of the Clippers approach has been research has been trying to put, you know, set the stage for making the best pitch possible to Kawhi when July rolls around. It's not a, a direct, you know, hey, Kawhi, we love you. You know, how's it going? You know, middle school dance type component or, or environment. Mm-hmm. But it was, yeah, it was an interesting, uh, interesting moment. So, so it sounds like their approach might be the opposite of what the Lakers have kind of done in the past, where it's kind of yeah. the, the show that they're trying to put on. But here, it's not necessarily trying to get like FaceTime with him and maybe kind of like backdoor their way into signing him in free agency. It's really about his fit and selling him on the basketball side of things. Yeah, I mean the the way you know it's kind of been described to me from folks inside and then you know other teams as well who go through the same process is you know let's fast forward to July one. 
it, it's really no different than when you're in high school and you have a final exam and you better have done every single thing possible study wise to, you know, to get as good a grade as you can. And that includes if you're a front office, you need to, you're painting a picture and you're not painting, you know, kind of a miss the mark type picture like the Lakers did in so many summers when they had LaMarcus Aldridge come in and he was not impressed with their presentation and things like that. The Clippers are trying to focus on the game. Their, their new little mantra internally is, you know, the black top, not the big top. Um, so the research that's going on is for one, we, we kind of overlook the fact that Kawhi only playing nine games last year means that everybody around the league has to update their file on who he is right now as a player. It's a different, you know, kind of backdrop with the Raptors, with Nick Nurse and his system, what they're trying to do. Uh, where is he at as a playmaker? Where is he at health-wise? More specifically, what types of pieces do we truly believe would complement his talents the best? You know, one anecdote that somebody shared with me is they said, you know, sometimes high-level players will tell you to surround me with shooters, and then you'll watch them closely, and you'll if you watch closely enough, you'll see, like, well, listen, man, that's great, but you don't pass to your shooters. And, you know, and you have to try to reconcile kind of the way they, the player sees himself with what you actually see with an objective eye. So that's part of it. Now the, on the periphery, you know, is there relationship building that's more kind of the human dynamic where you want to make sure that, that, that everybody around him knows where your head is at as an organization? A hundred percent. But I think what's unique about the Clippers is that, and this is the part where let's just all be like grownups about it. Like honestly, the Lakers, I think, push the envelope because they're the Lakers and because they have that kind of juice. The Clippers are smart enough and self-aware enough to know that given the fact that their brand has been one of the worst in the league for so long, the last thing they can afford is to come within a million miles of something that would be perceived as improper. And so I think they're almost overcorrecting in that department because they know that all it takes is one bad headline along those lines, you know, to kind of kill what they're doing here. Well, and, and so moving on to the next thing, because Kawhi Leonard's free agency is tied to this trade deadline because as teams try to jockey for position for him, they may be trying to add those pieces. And with Trevor Ariza being moved to Washington and Kelly Oubre now in Phoenix, there's a real question as to whether Ariza's arrival in Washington eliminates some of the pieces that might be, might be going elsewhere. So Bradley Beal, for instance, when you see Ariza going to Washington and Washington making this this play for the right now, or are does that really eliminate those players from the deadline? Does it change your perspective of what the trade deadline is going to be? And do you think that impacts how a team like the Clippers can go about the next step in in free agency? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, you know, Jake, I don't know how you see it, but. The Wizards we knew were out there for a, a number of weeks, you know, with the John Wall, Bradley Beal, Otto Porter type scenarios where things were so toxic internally that it seemed like maybe they were going to go ahead and give up on this group that had two all-stars and, and a, a lot of talent. And, you know, they're, if you had a, a PER type stat for like just the, the least efficient use of top level talent, the, uh, you know, we all know the Wizards are, are probably at the top of that list. So we thought they might turn the page, but now it seems like they're not going to, and they're going to kick the can, uh, the can down the road yet again. So does that mean they won't deal any of those guys at the deadline? No. I mean, if, 
you know, maybe it's counterintuitive where you send that message to the league that if you want one of these dudes, you better put, you know, just a, a huge amount on the table. But uh, right now it doesn't appear to be the case. And, and I think that what they got him for in and of itself, you know, you can't ever tell if, if one deal is going to set the tone, you know, or how far kind of that ripple effect goes. But I mean, the idea that you got a guy in Austin Rivers who gets cut in Phoenix and is, you know, our Sham Sharania had reported that he's likely going to Memphis, but he, that's, that's a nothing move for Phoenix. And then you got Kelly Urbre, who's going to be, uh, you know, up this summer as a restricted free agent. You know, that's about as, as low a return on the dollar as, as I think we could have anticipated. Yeah. The, the whole trade kind of struck me as a little bit weird. And I think it does kind of indicate, at least on a surface level, that they're not going to move Waller Beal. My question to you is this is it seems like Ariza might be one of the hotter names on the trade market. And like you said, you got about as low of a return as possible in a restricted free agent in Kelly Oubre Jr. Does this mean that when we get to February, the trade deadline comes up, that it's not going to be a flurry of activity? There's not really going to be, you know, tons of pieces and big names or things thrown around and is this kind of as you said does it really set the table for maybe a quieter in-season deadline well i mean we to me it always comes down to obviously you know as the deadline gets closer we got to start taking tally of buyers and sellers and right now i think you just have far more buyers than you have sellers and the west is interesting in that regard because you're legitimately talking about 15 out of 16 teams that are nowhere near selling. Uh, you know, they're looking at this and, and I'm cheating and looking at the standings right now. I mean, the Utah Jazz have had a disastrous season by their standards and they're seven games back of the top spot in the West, you know, currently 15th overall. So I don't see, uh, a flurry, at least right now, based on the fact that, you know, the cabinet is relatively, you know, uh, dry. There's just not much up there. And, you know, we talk about Robin Lopez types. You have, you know, Mark L. Fultz situation. You got the Jabari Parker stuff. Um, you know, there's going to be moves. You got J.R. Smith and, you know, what's going to happen with him. Uh, but we don't, I mean, the, the Wizards had the star power. The Wizards had the potentially franchise changing move. If you, you know, relocated what either it was John or Bradley, if one of those two guys were on the move. And in that regard, it's just, it seems a whole lot less sexy right now. Like Miami, did they do something, you know, with, Richardson or one of those young guys. I don't know. Kent Bazemore in Atlanta comes to mind as well. And Jeremy Lin, we've been talking about them for a long time. So I, I do see action, but, uh, you know, the real marquee headline type stuff, again, we thought was going to come out of Washington. And if not there, I'm not sure where. I, I feel like this deal is a classic save your job type of situation. Sure. People were starting to clamor for any Grunfield, Grunfield job. And that's just. When, when you have a Kelly Oubre who in, in Washington wasn't particularly great, but showed flashes, showed promise, hat, is 23 and players develop at different speeds. So we don't know what he's going to become ultimately. There is a decision you have to pay him or not, whatever. To have him and to move him just for Trevor Ariza, who was mentally checked out in Phoenix. That, to me, is just a, we need to do something. I'm not going to trade away Waller Beal because I'm not going to rebuild. I'm Oubre, I'm not going to pay him, so he doesn't matter. He became this expendable thing, and if they get Ariza, and if Ariza helps and gets them to 500, let's say, or slightly above 500, that's good enough right now for the sixth seed in the East. And then they can say, hey, look, we turned it around. We've made up... 
you know, seven games in the standings. We are going into the playoffs with momentum. And then they're going to get crushed by whomever the third seed is, Boston, Milwaukee, whomever. So Gwenfield gets to keep his job for, what, another few months. Meanwhile, Oubre is gone for nothing. You didn't get a draft pick. You didn't get anything like that. I just don't understand what the Wizards are are doing overall as a team building. And and I don't think when you look at what Grunfeld did with this Oubre trade, I really don't think he's going to move anybody else. I think this is it. If anything, they're going to try to be even more buyers at the trade deadline just for an effort to to get into that sixth or fifth seed where they absolutely shouldn't be. They should be sellers. And I think a selling team trying to buy at the deadline can turn the entire thing on its head because they need that star power. If you got Bradley Beal, who is phenomenal, I think, and could be the get of the trade deadline, you have him on the move, then you bring in third teams, then picks are being traded, you get role players being moved, you got cap being freed up. When you don't have that, that that kills a lot of ancillary trades. So I think that move to bring in Ariza, just because of what it doesn't allow Washington to do, does put a damper on the trade deadline. Well, I mean, I agree with all of that, John. Although, for one, you clearly, you know, you said you don't know what they're doing. You clearly do know what they're doing. You know what I mean? Like, that's, you just laid it out really well. I I think there is an element of job preservation going on here. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of steal from, uh, our colleagues over at ESPN, I watched the jump today with Rachel Nichols does a great job. And, and, you know, Rachel, for one, had alluded to the fact that you got, when you got two all-stars, it's enticing. It's just, it's intoxicating. It's very hard to let go of that. Uh, and, and I understand that. So I'm fascinated from like a psychology standpoint about the Wizards challenge and this fork in the road that they can't figure out which way they want to go. Um, you know, and I do understand that struggle, but yes, I think there's job preservation. And I also think that when you look at, you know, the Ubre Ariza kind of calculus, Ubre is not valuable to Phoenix because they don't have much time to figure out if they want to pay him. But I'm with you on the Washington side. He's a young guy who had played some pretty good ball for them over the years and was, you know, we didn't necessarily anticipate them giving up this easy. And the Ariza thing too, there, there's a chemistry component to what they did that I, again, I understand it for the short term where Trevor, 100% is like a locker room healer. Like that's part of his, you might as well put that in the contract that that's part of his deal. <laughs> it's not even a matter of getting us buckets and defending. Uh, he's got to be in there to, to help from a personality standpoint because he is considered a good leader. He is, you know, has won a championship with the Lakers a long time ago. Um, and you know, that's part of his gig. And conversely, we all know the Austin River situation and you know, that, that even though that's a talented player, who, you know, can put the ball in the hole, he was not getting along very well with guys in that locker room. And so, you know, their perception is you remove that problem. So we all know what's happening here for the short term, but I don't think you'll run into anybody who thinks this has got any sort of long runway. What's kind of funny about that is, is it seems like Phoenix kind of wanted to move maybe Ariza out of there because he was checked out, as John said. And if, when you're trying to like build a, a culture almost from the ground up with a lot of younger guys like that, maybe it's not a good thing for them, but it fits elsewhere. And then it seems like maybe they just wanted no part of Rivers and what he brought to the team, even though he kind of fills a bit of a gap for him this year. And so the dynamics around this trade are so bizarre. 
And I don't know. I just thought both those two guys could have gone for a little bit more had they waited. And it seems like both teams just were ready to move on from this and try and start fixing things now. For sure. It is interesting, though, too, isn't it? How, like, you know, one guy in one spot can can be kind of a positive influence. And then in another spot, maybe not so much. Like, here's the irony. I talked to Tyson Chandler recently about how revived he is in Lakerland because he spent three years playing meaningless basketball in Phoenix. Now Tyson, by all accounts, was very professional all the way through, was a positive impact, you know, on the young guys around him, but he was a frustrated man who was not really enjoying himself. You know, now he's just got a completely different vibe about him. He's playing, you know, really, really good basketball. With Trevor, you know, I'll probably because he's got a good track record when it comes to locker rooms, I'm just gonna chalk the Phoenix thing up to it's it's like anything else in life. Like when everybody in the room knows that you're only there to get your check, then it's it's a little hollow. You know what I mean? So you probably aren't nearly as inspired to 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 be the leader that you had been previously, or to kind of have the spirit about you that you did when it was a more competitive environment, when you knew that you you kind of had more you know skin of the game than just the cash. And everybody who saw Trevor leave Houston in Rockets, people who were disappointed to see him go, just kind of shrugged and said, what are we supposed to do? That's a lot more money than we were going to pay him. And, you know, I think he'll probably flip that switch and, and be that guy again in Washington. Well, I'm sure Washington hopes for that, hope so. But, again, I don't think that means much. Phoenix, I actually, I don't mind this deal for Phoenix because they took a guy, a 33-year-old guy, who was just done. Like, he was done. And maybe they had more value. Maybe there might have been a little bit more value. Maybe there could have been a second round pick that they could have gotten. Maybe. Okay. That, that's fair. But they did take a 33 year old who didn't want to be there. And now they got a 23 year old who they can offer a, a decent contract to. And if he does seem to show promise, if he flourishes, then Great. You've got a 23 now, soon 24 year old kid who will grow and fits kind of like the timeline of the rest of the, the, the team. Now it does create a log jam at that position. It does change some of the prior plans that they had. Fine. But amassing talent on a bad team is not a bad thing. You don't worry about fit on a team like the Phoenix Suns who are sitting there with seven wins, and that's after a three-game win streak. You just amass as much talent as you can. And if Kelly Oubre shows that promise, if he turns around and is like having this great resurgence, maybe you could turn around and flip him because they could trade him at the trade deadline. They could trade sure. him in a, a simple one-for-one one deal or something like that. They just can't uh, – I don't think they can have enough time to aggregate him by the deadline. But – even if they want to turn and flip him for something else, that's how you build a team when you're the Phoenix Suns. Just get as much young talent as you can. And then if some of it fits and some of it doesn't, you have to cut bait sooner than you thought, that's fine. Just get as much as you can, and then you package a bunch of it for a star, or you flip, You oh, this guy doesn't fit here, but he's, he's showing some promise. Flip him. Do whatever. Get picks that way. So... I don't mind what they did because the worst case scenario is that they were going to lose a reason for nothing or they're going to get, uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope, which big deal. Like that's, that's the deal they should have done instead. I don't think so. So, but it's going to be an interesting trade deadline. It's going to be an interesting free agency. Obviously we're, there's going to be a ton to talk. We're going to talk about that every day on Locked on NBA, which we do to some degree, but we won't anymore here. 
because we're running up against the clock. What we are going to do is tell you about the Lockdown Fantasy Podcast. If you really want to get into the nitty-gritty, if you're a fantasy basketball player, then obviously Lockdown Fantasy Basketball is going to be the podcast you need to get the edge. If you want just deep-dive numbers, you don't have to be a fantasy basketball player. You just got to be a, a stats geek, and you'll really get deep dives into all the things that happen each night in the NBA by following the Locked on Fantasy Basketball podcast. There's a reason why it's the number one podcast on our network. It's really, really good, so go ahead and subscribe to that. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about four-point lines, and we're going to give our own little fun suggestions for weird tweaks to the NBA game. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more on the Locked on NBA podcast. Today, the uh, ESPN, the ESPN, I'm just going to call it the ESPN. I'm just going to put the in front of everything now. The ESPN created, put put out this uh, story on the four-point line that teams are putting on their practice courts and other little tricks, little things, boxes on the courts, on the practice courts to create spacing and different things that they're doing to create spacing and emphasize what they want to emphasize. So I thought it was fun to kind of all three of us create our own little one tweak, one thing that we could throw into a game akin to a four-point line, which would have been Antoine Walker's favorite thing. Uh, but sadly, It's one of the best quotes of all time, by the way. Oh, unbelievable. For those people who don't know the Antoine Walker quote, when he was asked why he takes so many threes, he said, because there are no fours, which is awesome. <laughs> I mean, just a classic line. So instead of the four-point line, Let's go around the room and let's see what tweak, what weird, goofy thing would you put in to kind of make make an NBA game more fun. Sam, why don't you go first? You're the guest. Well, gentlemen, first of all, I, I fell short on the research front because my idea, I wish I could give you the exact historical timeline of, of when this little phenomenon, you know, kind of exited the league, uh, but in this day and age when superstars have so much power, uh, you know, the LeBrons and the Chris Pauls and the Steph Currys of the world and all the way down the line where we know that they make more money than anybody in the organization. A lot of these guys, we always write and talk about them about how incredibly smart they are. I say we return to the player coach. Nice. <laughs> I, I think that it would be fascinating. Because we have this elephant in the room power struggle when it comes to, you know, some of these guys. LeBron is the poster boy here because you can't tweet about Luke Walden, talk about Luke Walden, say anything about Luke Walden without somebody saying, well, you know, LeBron's the coach. And, and it's a running joke, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe you got to add four, five, six million to the salary. Uh, you got to have a robust assistant coaching staff because we all know that, you know, they don't have enough hours in the day to, to do the kind of grind that these coaching staffs actually do. But the player coach comes back, final verdict goes to that guy who's uh, the franchise centerpiece. And, and I think it would be a, it would be good fun. Isn't Jose Calderon a player coach in Detroit? Don't they call him that in Detroit? <laughs> Not exactly what I had in mind. Are they calling him that? <laughs> no, I swear to God, I, I, I think they actually call him like a player coach in, in Detroit. I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, this has already happened, and I somehow missed it. Lord. <laughs> He's definitely not getting paid like a player coach. I know what you're talking nothing. about. The right. last, I believe the last actual player coach was Bill Russell. 
for the Celtics. Is that, that's the one who comes to mind. I didn't know that was the last one. And I it was a think, train wreck. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Uh, but yeah, I don't, there might have been another, but I think he was the last one. Player are coach. We, are, are you, are you referring? This is the Sacramento chapter that you're referencing. No, I with Bill. Oh yeah, you're talking about the Celtics days. The, the Celtics days. Yeah, no, I, that's funny. I thought they had another one after that, but there, I mean, there might I, be, I might it, be wrong. Right. I think it could be fun. You know, I I mean, like, again, it's it's all in fun, but it really is. It, I'm just the the bigger backdrop macro discussion is just the weird tango, the, like the dance that goes on between players and organizations where we still act like it's taboo that these guys have power. You know what I mean? Like, like even not to get off on a tangent, but this mellow to the Lakers story, you know, there's been like, they got seen in New York last night, LeBron and Mello had dinner together and everybody acts like, you know, Oh, is, is LeBron going to twist the Lakers arm and make Mello come? Well, like we just shouldn't be shocked that LeBron has a lot of juice in Lakerland. You know, the guy made them relevant again. Doesn't make it right, doesn't make it wrong. But, you know, it's, it's, if you kind of put it on a parallel to the business world, I mean, it's, it's the way it should be. The guy has, you know, he's got more skin in the game than anybody, at least in terms of who moves the needle. I think people are caught up in what basketball is on every other level besides the NBA and in no right. other, in no other instance does a player have power. There's right. a very strong structure. And I think at this point, people are either like NBA or college fans. And if you are, you sit there and say, well, look at college, the player would never do this. Well, of course not. In the NBA, I think it's really important for people to understand that the dynamic is yes, coach versus player, but it's much more like coworker in, right. in, in the dynamic. Like, the coach does say, I can, I have the power to play you or not play you, but the coach is essentially like a middle manager, not the CEO. There are many levels right. above him. So it, it's difficult. I mean, that's why like Jim Boylan right now is front and center. Nobody, oh, you know, that, that killed I, my nobody question. thinks that. Oh, <laughs> all right. Sorry. I was, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll let you yeah. go. I was going to say, would that make, would, would a player coach make the Bulls better or worse in this situation right now? I think you would. Harry Parker? If you had Jim as, you know, your lead assistant, fine. You could be tough, but then the, the player can tell him to calm down when he's, you know, when he's losing his mind. I mean, it's, I mean, that's a whole different conversation about how that's just simply not like the general fabric of today's NBA head coach. And, you know, most people assume it's not going to work, but it is, uh, you know, most coaches, they know the, the deal here. They know that if you've got a franchise centerpiece who's worth his, his salary, then, you know, you are coworkers and you have to, kind of walk that line to make it all work. I mean, I've got this, this funny moment in my head that has kind of stuck with me. Lakers media day, uh, beginning of the season, LeBron does his first LA media availability in front of a, a massive crowd. And after he's done, Luke Walton comes up next and we were standing next to the, the podium and Luke kind of walks by us and grins and he had not heard, he wasn't there for LeBron's session. And, and Luke kind of rolls by a couple of reporters and looks at us and goes, oh, did he say anything I need to know about? <laughs> Where it's like, <laughs> you know, like he's not stupid. He knows, you know, and, and that's just, that, that dynamic fascinates me. Cause again, we keep acting like that's not, uh, that's not the case for with good reason. I think it is. 
Well, look at uh, here in New Orleans where Anthony Davis just does not want to be considered a five. And now in a lot of his press conferences, Alvin Gentry refuses to refer to him as a five and only refers to him as a four or a power yeah. forward. And it's kind yeah. of just ingrained itself there that no one in that organization talks about him that way. Yeah, that's because they're they got a, a very important objective in front of them. I mean, that's the politics of it. And, you know, and again, I mean, with good reason. He's a hell of a player. New Orleans has a hell of a time getting, you know, guys who are described as hell of a players to come to town. So they got a lot to lose. All right, Jake, what's your thing? This, I mean, this one's easy. This isn't nearly as fun as player coaches and, and the discussion we can have there. But, look, I'm a huge fan of the FIBA uh, offensive basket interference rules and the goaltending rules that they have there basically just – once the ball hits the rim, it is a free-for-all that might help here in New Orleans with Anthony Davis, too. Get him a couple more boards, a couple different ways to improve their defense that way. So I am all for that rule. I like I it. I love it. I like I think it. Yeah. great. For me, it's you give me a little flashback. Um, I've, I've covered international stuff twice. It was a FIBA World Cup and then and then the Olympics. And the first time I did FIBA and I saw the style of play, and not only what you're talking about, but, you know, the shorter games and just the different tweaks that they made. Um, the next time I ran into Adam Silver, I kind of jokingly was like, Adam, come on, man. Like, pick up some stuff from FIBA. Like, first of all, we're all going home a little bit earlier because the games, you know, they, they, they get through a little faster. But it does add a, a great element when you're talking about, you know, the drama above the rim on the offensive side rather than, you know, the, the boring uh, video replays of whether or not it was a goaltend. Yeah, I love it. And look, they miss so many goaltends anyway. Go just make it make it a free for all. I love it. I love that call. Uh okay. Mine is much goofier. I suggest a once per game money ball where out of a timeout, a team down, whatever, it's a five point ball. Because we were looking at four-point shots, and I'm like, you know what? Forget this. It's a five-point ball, and it's for one possession. You get the ball, and if you score, you get the five points, and that's it. But if you miss and the other team gets the rebound and they score, they get the five points, and that's it. After that, if they miss, that's it. No more five points. But that's – wouldn't that just if, – if it's late and you're fouling, you're, you're in that three-, four-point game, and you're like, oh, we're just going to foul and do the free throw thing, wouldn't it be great? to have a five-point ball and have a potential five-point play to completely change the complexion of the game? Here's the, I love it. That is, that's a lot of fun. I, I think the other component that should go with it is I'm sitting here seeing this in my head is in terms of like determining when that ball gets inserted into the game, you know, you got to have some kind of buzzer in the building where the fans for 48 minutes, it's the drama of having no clue you know, when that buzzer is going to go off and when that ball is going to come into play. And you got to have some kind of system behind the scenes where it's, it's random and it's not at all connected to what's happening in the game. But, you know, you know, at some point it's going to be fourth quarter, two minutes left, two point game. And, and, and the anticipation is building because everybody knows that we haven't even seen the five point ball yet. You know, I think that'd be cool. I like it. 
Yeah. That is an awesome rule. So you have like a big siren in the arena that just goes yes. like bananas whenever it comes out. What is it like with the, the secret word of the day from Pee Wee's yeah. Playhouse or something like that? Where <laughs> exactly. They all, started, they all started screaming. I also like that the rule, I guess this varies by region in like, uh, beer pong, it's like calling an island. Oh, oh so silence. What's... Wait, wait. I'm not, so what's... I mean, I'm a beer pong veteran. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know the island reference. Oh, when you have a cup that's just by itself, if you call that cup and you make it, it counts as two, but if you hit any other cup or it misses, it doesn't count whatsoever. Even if you oh. get it in another cup. Gotcha. All right. All right. That's, that's like a new it. one to me. I, look, I'm all for those drinking games, so. I'm, I'm glad yeah. I enhanced your parties from now on. <laughs> Love it. I'm in. I'm in. Well, all right. That's fun. Maybe someday. This was like inspired by the old like rock and jock, the 10 point basket that they would drop or whatever. So. Someday, maybe. I thought it might have, John, been inspired by uh, our own Ethan Strauss. You guys ever see the, the piece that Ethan wrote about the next trends in the league that, that he was advocating for that he wrote I last month? I missed that. I missed It was that good. One. It was a fun read. So for the, the listening audience that, you know, that enjoys the, the kind of zany stuff, because we don't spend a ton of time just, you know, analyzing the game itself and where we can make tweaks. The one that, that jumped out at me is he talked about this new kind of very slowly building trend of, of we saw it last night with the with Gallinari of you know of uh, throwing the ball off the backboard on purpose to yourself. But Gallinari's was fantastic because he has no business doing it. Uh, but essentially using the backboard as a the backboard pass is you know becoming a thing and an actual skill every so often that that guys with more hops than than Gallinari are uh, trying to utilize. That's awesome. I love it. I, I think that's great. And it's all fun. It's all fun. Pass right. yourself off the backboard, whatever, man. It's basketball. It's a good time. Uh, all right. So good show. Thanks to Sam Amick for joining us. Check his workout on the athletic. Check my workout soon to be on Mass Live within the next couple of weeks and, uh, check out Jake's on Locked On Pelicans. That's the Locked On NBA podcast for today. The boss, David Locke, gets you tomorrow on Locked On NBA. Thanks for listening, everybody.